universal basic income. It is the idea that, hey, with robotics, with growing automations, with a booming economy worldwide, I don't know where that's happening, but with that booming economy that supposedly is about to happen in the future with robotics and automations, that we are going to have so much surplus in the system that we are going to be able to give every person across the globe a basic income by which they can buy all their food, pay all their bills, and have a house rent free. You know, say maybe $2,000 a month. And this, guys, I'm telling you, if we can institute socialism under the name of universal basic income, then we are going to solve all of the world's problems because people are going to be more ingenious. People are going to be more hardworking or will they? Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot and you're listening to the Lucas Scrobot Show where we uncover purpose, pursue truth and own the future. Thank you for being with me on the show today first show of 2021. I'm excited to be here and more than that, I'm excited that you're here with me. And today we're going to be talking about universal basic income. The question for today, which I I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, we are going to even begin to scratch the surface of the complexities of an idea like universal basic income where it has pitfalls and downfalls, and where it could possibly really answer some questions. Mm, Maybe, but I need to throw that in there so I can look, you know, a little bit uh, non-biased in this. But the thing that I want to really question today is, does universal basic income, the underlying premise of it, does it work? And should we have it or is it merely socialism with a new rebranded name slapped onto it? And I'm, I'm here to tell you that socialism has failed every single time that it has ever been instituted. You look at the inner cities across America where by and large, there are socialistic ideologies that are running the inner cities of America. They are failing. If you look at Venezuela, you look at USSR, you look at China, you look at North Korea, you look at Cambodia, and guys and ladies and gentlemen, time and time again, these ideas have failed. Geeks, phony bab, cliff. I could go on forever, baby. It's true. I can go on forever about how many times socialism has failed and so many people have. Now, the of course, the basic, the, the excuse everyone throws out there to say, well, it's never been tried before. Look at Sweden. Look at Norway. You have to remember that their economies actually are not based on socialistic ideologies. They're based on free market capitalism and They have smaller populations and a great surplus of oil. But for the question at hand, does the underlying premise of UBI, does it work or is 
it flawed? Well, to answer that question today, we're going to turn to the story of Richard Montanez and the spicy Cheetos. So Richard Montanez, he was born in the 1960s in the Rancho Cucamonga Valley in California, about 40 miles east and south of Los Angeles. And he was born to an immigrant family. He was a first-generation immigrant from Mexico. He lived with his mom, dad, and his grandfather, and 11 children in one cinder block house. His his parents and his grandparents, they worked on farms picking picking grapes out in the hot Californian sun. Now, it was hard being a immigrant to start with, and on top of it, he didn't know English. So when he went to an all-white school, it was a massive struggle for him to just fit in. It was a massive struggle for him just to understand what the teacher was saying. And day one, to add to his miseries, he opens his lunchbox and his mom has packed him a burrito. All the other kids have cupcakes and bologna. And quickly he realized he's the odd man out. Something's wrong. I don't fit in. He put his lunch back away and he went home crying to his mom. He he relates the story. He's crying to his mom, saying, Mom, pack me cupcakes and bologna like the rest of the kids. And the, his mom, an amazing woman, wise woman, a guide in his life, says, No, it, you are different. And it's okay that you're different. It's actually great that you are different and unique. You are perfectly, wonderfully created exactly how you are. So the next day, she didn't give him one burrito, but she gave him two. And she said, find a friend and give a burrito to your friend. Well, that was Thursday. And he tells the story that by Friday, he was selling burritos to the kids for a quarter a piece, 25 cents a piece. In today's money, that'd be like $2.50 a piece per burrito. And that's a great great side hustle as a little kid. And so off the bat, you can see that there was something that was different about Richard. He was able to see opportunities because of his parents, because of his mom, where there wasn't opportunities. Well, sadly, uh, he didn't make it very far in the education system. He had some problems which was he dropped out of school quite early. He dropped out with only a fourth grade reading level. He began working in the fields with his family. He took odd jobs, slaughtering chickens in in slaughterhouses at poultry farms, washing cars, picking weeds. He saw and had no path out of poverty. Now, right here, this is where UBI, Universal Basic Income, steps in and says, We have the solution. We can save the day. If we only instituted UBI, right here, Richard would have a clear path to have his all of his needs in his life taken care of. And he would, you know, be able to live and eat. And the poor, the poor kid, he can't get ahead in life. Everything's stacked against him. Well, that is not what happened. And instead, he found out, his neighbor told him that there is an opening at the Frito-Lay factory as 
a janitor. Now, this job actually paid quite well compared to the odd jobs that he was doing. It paid $4 an hour back in 1976. That equals about $18 or $19 per hour in today's money. So when we say $4 an hour, it's actually not something that's bottom of the barrel. It's paying actually a pretty good wage for 1976. So he doesn't know how to read. He barely knows how to read. He doesn't know how to write. So he gets, as an 18-year-old, he gets this application. He goes to his wife and has his wife fill out the application. He meets with a hiring manager and he gets the job. He's now on a path. He's now on a path that will, unbeknownst to him, end up changing the entire course of his life. Well, after he gets this job, he goes back to his family, his father, his grandfather, and he announces that, you know, I've made it. I've got this great job as a janitor. There's, they're celebrating at this, this party. And his grandfather turns to him and he says, make sure that floor shines. Let them know that it was a Montana's that mopped it. And both his father and grandfather he relates, was also close and strong mentors in his life. This is his grandfather and father that taught him work ethic. It taught him to show up early, not on time. It taught him to do your job fully, to do your responsibilities and jobs that weren't even belonging to you. And so it was that day before he started that he chose in his heart that he was going to be the best janitor that Frito-Lay has ever seen. And it was true. People would say every time that they'd walk into a room, it would smell fresh. And he realized because of the experience that he was able to create for his coworkers as a janitor, as the bottom of the totem pole, he realized there is no such thing as being just a janitor. There is no such thing as being just a bricklayer. There's no such thing as being just a cook. But if you do something with excellence, you can be great. You can have a great craft. In the midst of this, he was hungry. He was hungry to learn. He was hungry to grow. He was showing up early every day. He was doing his job with amazing excellence. And he began to network and learn other parts of the industry. He began making friends with the cooks and the machine workers and the salesmen. He was beginning to learn the entire industry and people began to come to him to ask advice, even though he was just a lowly janitor. Now, fast forward a little bit. We're at to the, to the mid-1980s and Frito-Lay is struggling as a company. So the CEO, Roger Enrico, he sends this message, which you know today it's commonplace, but back then it wasn't really commonplace in a really top-down American corporate setting. And the message was this. He sent it out to all 300,000 employees across the world in Frito-Lay, and he says, act like an owner. He encourages all of the employees at Frito-Lay to act like owners. And Montana's, 
he takes this message to heart. Most other people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was one who heard the words of the CEO and said, you know what? He is giving me permission. He is giving me permission to act like an owner. And in my estimation, he was already acting like an owner. He was already showing up early. He was already taking responsibility for things around him rather than just doing his job and getting by. So now that Montanas has this opportunity, this invitation from the CEO that says, hey, act like an owner, solve problems, figure out how we can get our company back on the ground, Montanas gathers enough courage to ask one of the salesmen if he could go along with him on his sales ride over the weekend. So he's putting in extra hours for free, going with the sales guy, and while he is there, he has a moment, a revelatory moment in the shop. He's looking around, and he sees all of the Cheetos lined up on the shelf, and there is nothing, not Cheetos, not nothing else on those shelves of potato chips that is spicy. Now, I'm not one particularly for spice, but I know that a lot of other people are in Hispanic culture. They love spicy food. Uh, Indian culture, they love spicy food. Here in the Middle East, they love spicy food. I don't, I don't hate it. It's just some of the spice levels that other people love. Um, it's just a little too much for me. But he recalls that there are were no spicy foods. And right next to all these chips, there happens to be sh shelves of Mexican spices, but Frito-Lay had nothing that was hot and spicy. So he began to think. He went home that day. He sat on his concrete stairs in front of his house, and he got uh, a corn stick, a Mexican corn stick where they put uh, what's called an elato, where it's street corn, where it's doused in chili powder and salt and lime juice and, and, and cream. And he's eating this corn stick on his porch with his kid, thinking to himself, what, what could I do? What could I, how could I solve this problem for Frida LA? How could I make something that's spicy? And he realized he was holding the answer right there in his hand. Later that week, he got some uncheesed Cheetos from the factory. He made up his own spice mix, spiced it, and he went back to the factory and went, went to his family, went to the factory, and everyone tried it. They loved it. And so he decided to call the CEO of the company. Now, Poor, poor Richard. He didn't know the protocol. He didn't know that he wasn't supposed to do that. Even though he was told, you know, act like a CEO, he wasn't supposed to actually go and call the CEO of the company. So he calls the CEO and the executive assistant, she picks up the phone. She says, Mr. Enrico's office, who's this? Oh, this is Richard Montana's. Uh, what division are you with? California. Oh, you're the VP overseeing California. N no, I work at the Rancho Cucamonga plant. Oh, so you're the VP of operations. N no, I work inside the plant. Oh, so you're the plant manager. 
nope, I'm the janitor. The, <laughs> the assistant, she was shocked. She said, one moment, please. Like, why is a janitor calling the CEO? It makes no sense. She puts him on the line. Enrique gets on the line, says, hello, this is Roger. Montana's told the CEO he heeded the call to action and he began to study the company's history, this, the company's structure, the company's positioning. And he said, hey, I have this idea to meet a market that is not being meet, met by Frito-Lay. Enrico loved the idea so much. He said, look, I'm coming down there in two weeks and I am going to hear this pitch. Now, at, at this point, you think, okay, well, it's all, it's all sunsets and rainbows from there, but actually he had a lot of kickback. His manager above him came storming in his office and said, what are you doing calling the CEO? Don't you understand? Like, you have to do this presentation. He, it, this, the manager was so mad because he had jumped rank. He didn't go through the right chains of commands. He just went straight to the top. He didn't even know that that was breaking protocol. But because of this, he spends the next two weeks studying with his wife, figuring out how to put together a, a marketing presentation. He failed out of school. He's never done a presentation in his life, let alone his homework. He gives a presentation to the CEO and the, the VP of marketing and the head of marketing and all the top execs of Frito-Lay. He had made all of his own labels and sealed Ziploc bags with his spicy Cheetos in the middle of it. And by the end of the conversation with the CEO, the CEO said, put your mop away, you're coming with us. Now, again, it's not the end of the story. There's actually more that transpired. After six months of, of creating a product, it went out to the test markets. And Montana's still was hungry. He wasn't satisfied with saying, well, I put it out there into the world. Let's see what happens. No, instead, he gathered, I, I love this, this part of the story. He gathered all of his friends, all of his friends and his wife, and got all the money that they could. And they went to all of the test markets, all the stores that for a limited period of time had these spicy Cheetos in there. And they bought, bought up all of the Cheetos and they would say to the manager of the store, oh man, I love these things. And then the next week, they come back and they have an entire shelf filled with spicy Cheetos. Now, you probably know the end of the story. The end of the story is that it became a blockbuster hit for Frito-Lay. And these spicy Cheetos are everywhere around the world, especially here in the Middle East. I actually quite detest them because I can't get normal Cheetos. The only thing they sell here is spicy Cheetos. And so, but, but here's the story. Here's the story of a man who came from nowhere, who came from nothing first-generation immigrant. And he had an opportunity. He did something with it. And now he's one of the top execs at Frito-Lay, still living in Rancho Cucamonga, and has a nonprofit 
where he also teaches at a local college where he teaches business. He was once asked by a student, you don't have a PhD, how can you teach if you don't have a PhD or teaching university? Richard responded and he said, I do have a PhD. I've been poor, hungry, and determined. So back to the problem at hand, universal basic income. My question to you is if Richard wasn't poor, hungry, and determined, and if his father and grandfather and mother weren't poor, hungry, and determined, would he have taken all those opportunities? Would he have stepped up and tried to be the best janitor that Frito-Lay has ever seen? Would he have taken the CEO at his word and went out and created a a multi-million dollar market for Frito-Lay because he saw a niche in the market? Or if the government was taking care of him and giving him $2,000 a month, Would that have actually caused him to be more creative? Would that have caused him to be more ingenious, not having to work and strive and impress himself to be the most excellent janitor that he could be? Would that $2,000 a month actually helped him or would it have hurt him? Would the free ride of food and shelter helped him in his, his quest and his progress? Or would have had deterred him, would have filled him his stomach so he wasn't hungry, would have filled and scratched that desire so he wasn't determined to get breakthrough. Would a basic income cause him to lose his hunger for excellence and greatness? Did the pressure of his life and the pressure of his father and his mother or the pressure that was on his grandparents, the life that they fought for, did that ultimately drive him to be disciplined and entrepreneurial? Or is he merely a a one in a billion anomaly, but the majority of the world should have all their needs met by the government? Don't go away. We will be right back with a segment from Weaver and Loom. Today's quote from Weaver and Loom for this segment of the show, Weaver and Loom is a segment of the show where we take ancient wisdom and connect it with our purpose and our destiny so that we can be connected to the things that we are supposed to do with our life so that we can achieve the things that we were placed on this earth for. And the way that we get there, the way that we do that is through wisdom and applying wisdom. So today's quote is actually one that I think about quite often. I'm, I'm always thinking about this quote in the back of my head, and it's this, a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. That was penned by 
King Solomon many thousands of years ago. The thing that I love about this quote, it's that it's hunger drives a man to work. Hunger drives a man to work. And that is what we saw with Richard and the story of the spicy Cheeto. It was his drive and his hunger. And it's not just my assessment of it. This is what he says himself. He says, it was my hunger that drove me to work. It was my hunger that drove me to work. What happens when we take away hunger from our lives? What happens when we take away hunger from our kids' lives? I mean, I'm not talking about people literally starving in poverty like in Yemen. I'm not talking about people who are, are, are malnourished. I think there are, there are many organizations, there are many people around the world who give charitable gifts and do charitable acts for communities that are truly suffering. But my, my guess is that if you are listening to this, you're listening to it on some sort of device, and you probably have enough food to eat today. So I'm not talking about starvation. I hope you understand that. But what I am talking about is that drive and that hunger to succeed. And when we are surrounded by comfort and a cush circumstance where it's not the responsibility is not resting on our shoulders, do we lose that drive to succeed? And if we lose it, if his grandparents didn't have it, if his father didn't have it, would he have had that drive? Would he have had the advice to say, make sure that you are the best janitor that you could be. Make sure that that floor shines and make sure they know that it's you that shined it. Montana, as he tells a story in his book, he's a book titled A Boy, A Burrito, and a Cookie. And in the story he shares about when he was in school, he was on Tuesday, they had an after-school reading program, and they had two lines. They had one line for the white kids, and they had another line for the Hispanic kids. Now, the line for the white kids, at the end of their line, in their reading classes, they had cookies. The Hispanic kids didn't have cookies. But one day, one day, Montana's says, you know what? I'm going to get in the other line. And as he tells the story, he shares the reason that he decided to get into the other line was because he was hungry. He wanted a cookie. He doesn't say, I, I wanted to get into the other line because... I felt like I was, you know, goofing off. He says, no, I was hungry. I wanted cookies. And when my friends looked at me and said, get in the other line. You're in the wrong line. Come back over here. He was like, no way. I want, I want to get a cookie. I want to get a cookie. I'm hungry. He's like, I don't, I don't care what happens. Like, let's see what happens if I break protocol, if I break ranks and I use my hunger to overcome my fears, what might happen in my life if my hunger drove me to work? Well, he gets to the front of the line and there's these blonde hair, blue eyed teachers and they smile at him and they pack his shorts and his, his coat full of cookies 
and he brings the cookies back to his friends. And, and he, he shares, he shares that as much fear as I had in that moment, standing in the wrong line, wondering if they're going to notice that I'm not white, what are they going to do? He said, my hunger was greater than my fears. This year, this day, today, for you, not your friend who you think should be listening to this, but for you and for me, I hope that our hunger, that my hunger, that your hunger is greater than your fears, that you don't cave in to universal basic income to let all the needs of your life just cared for by other people. But I hope that you remain hungry, hungry to learn, hungry to grow, hungry to mature in your character, hungry to be a good husband and a good wife, a good father, a good mother, hungry, because it is that hunger that will drive us into the arms of discipline, into the arms of growing and becoming stronger wholer, healthier individuals. And it is that healthy individuals, healthy parents, healthy friends who change the world. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please remember to tell your friends, share the podcast with a friend. And that is one way you can help us here at the show grow. Also, if you have not gotten my book, Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting, feel free to go and grab that over on Amazon. And it's a great way to start off your 2021. I wrote that book in a time where I was drifting, where I could not get traction. I could not materialize my goals and I just realized my metrics were all off. So go over, get that book. It is a short, highly actionable read. Finally, remember you are a truth seeker, someone who goes out and makes sure and tries to with everything that you have to perceive and understand the world rightly. And it's from that place that we are able to connect with our purpose and own our futures. <laughs>